Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. We're going to talk about the 75-day interval. And you're like, well, I don't even know what that is. Well, we're going to discuss that because it's usually not discussed. But it's the last part of Daniel chapter 12. And um, what it is, um, is an interval period of time that Daniel predicts. Now, he doesn't understand all the ramifications because you need the book of Revelation to bring the timing into this. So I'll bring that and melt that together so you can see what he's talking about. But here's... Here's the basic concept is that, and this is the principle I want us to work with. The mess must be cleaned up first from the old season of life before the new one can begin. And that's what the 75-day interval is. It's a cleaning up of the mess that humans have made, the Antichrist has made, the globalists, the World Economic Forum, and all of these New World Order guys... The mess they have made needs to be cleaned up. And the the mess is so big that it takes Jesus to clean up the mess. It takes Jesus to end it, to end the evil. That's what the second coming is about. But then the 75-day interval is cleaning up, the cleanup period. And and what you want to take away as we go through this, I'll I'll apply it. And and the principle is this. We go through seasons of life. And when God gives us a new season of life... He expects us to have dealt with the old season's issues, to tie those loose ends up, deal with them, and not drag that mess into the next season of life. So it's funny, uh, in Minnesota, after I was speaking on Thursday night at Jan's, we had a line of people you know, wanting to talk to me and stuff like that. And uh, people sometimes take advantage of that, and they think they're going to get some marriage counseling. <laughs> Like for two minutes. And it doesn't work like that. But they do it anyway. So I had like two marriage appointments during that period of time. So this young couple comes up to me. And, and of course, I was talking about demonic oppression and harassment and all kinds of stuff. And so they come up to me and they guise their question of, we think we're being demonically harassed. My wife and I are like, really? And they're like 20-something years old. They hadn't been no more than 25. I said, really? I said, what, so what's going on? Well, you know, um, things are tense at home. Everyone's on edge. And, uh, you know, we're just, we snap at each other and we get, we get gruff with each other, yada, yada, yada. So we think it's demonic oppression. I'm like, okay, here we go. They're going to spiritualize their marital issues. Chalk it up to demons. The devil made us do this. Right? The whole Flip Wilson thing. So I can, I can you know, look, I've been counseling since I've been in ministry and so I said, the first thing I'm going to go to, because I'm, I'm going to say, what's your living condition right now? What, where are you living at? And out of his mouth, well, for not financial reasons, we're living with my parents. I said, um, oh, you're living with your parents. I go, why did you live with your parents? Because you're married now. Well, it's financial. We're trying to save money. <clears throat> okay. So I look at her. And I say, you like living with his parents? Because I wouldn't. Do you like it? And you could see she was like crying, getting ready to cry. No, no. I said, she just said what your problem is. The reason your house is tense is because you're living with your parents. 
I said, you're making a financial decision. The problem is, that's not a biblical decision. A biblical decision is, I need to leave and cleave. You can't stay with your parents once you're married. You're going into a new season of life of marriage, and you can't do the marriage if you're still under your parents' authority. You've established your own authority, and you've got to move on. So get out of the house as possible. And the guy's like, what? I thought it was demons. I thought it was demons. It's like, dude, don't, don't pull that, man. I said, get out of the house as soon as possible. Quit living with your parents. Um, but it's funny. What he's trying to do is bring his baggage of emotional incest into the new paradigm of his marriage. And it never works. If you're going to drag your in-laws with you in the marriage, you're going to have a disaster. You're a disaster. That's an example of what I'm talking about. This is what Jesus is doing, obviously. So let's talk about some current events before we get into this as an example of the mess they're making of my life and your life. The Davos group meets. Now, these guys are godlike creatures, apparently, to John Kerry. John Kerry said, well, this is exceptionally wonderful that all these people can get together. And this is like extraterrestrial. (laughs) What? John Kerry, you out of your mind? Yes, he's out of his mind. He's a psycho. And what happens is that they're calling themselves a group of elites. And he was saying they're they're extra extraterrestrial in the fact that, oh, you guys must be demigods. And you're going to tell us how to live our lives. And you're going to tell us what we can eat and how we use electricity and all that stuff. Yeah, extraterrestrial. He used the words. That's the mindset. The mindset of these groups of globalists that control the United States and the rest of the world is they think they're gods telling us what to do. They think they know what's better for us. And what they're going to do is create slaves with us. But anyway, what comes out of these meetings? Because this is the mess they're making of the world. By the way, when Jesus comes back, he has to clean up this mess. The mess that they're making is global. It's so large. You and I are not going to be able to clean up the mess. What they're doing has to be cleaned up by Jesus. Now, here's the same sentiments that come out. Uh, Part of the Great Reset. Siemens chairman calls for billion people to stop eating meat at World Economic Forum. Of course, we've talked about that. But again, people think, well, you're conspiracy theory. No, they say it at these meetings. Stop eating meat and eat bugs, right? We're going to replace meat with synthetic proteins, a la Bill Gates. You know, lab, lab protein or maybe crickets or whatever, larvae. They're going to make us do that because they know what's best for us. And because of the cow flatulence and the cow burps, you know, the cows are ruining the atmosphere. So we've got to get rid of those guys. Now, here's another thing. The bunch of sellouts, okay? These are sellouts in our own government. And I've told you, this is both Democrat and Republican. Um, they went to, a lot of our politicians went to this meeting in Davos, okay? To be with, to, to rub elbows with the globalists. I wouldn't step foot in a place like that it's so luciferian so disgusting but anyway our politicians decide to go for what because they probably believe the same things they do or push the same things. so anyway leo holman had a great article on the gateway pundit he goes pandering to the new world order american politicians sell out the global criminal syndicate with blood on its hands what did they do seth moulton joe manchin and brian kemp agreed over there with the World Economic Forum that speech should be censored. That's our own guide. And then they pushed the going green deal as well. They said, Joe Manchin, that sellout, that globalist, said that we need to curtail our free speech. 
Wait a second, Joe Manchin. And by the way, the new term for these types of creeps in our politicians is anos. Anos, short for Americans in name only. Okay? Americans in name only is a lot of our politicians. Okay? Agree that we should curb free speech. Wait a second, that's our Constitution. You can't be a politician and disagree with our Constitution. How dare you say that? Well, we should limit hate speech and, you know, uh, you know misinformation about the, the vaccines and stuff like that. Really? Dude, these guys are sellouts. Don't trust these guys. And pushing the green agenda. So Tony Blair gets up there at this meeting. And what does he say? Calls for a digital vaccine tracking. Digital vaccine track. We've talked about this, but again, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm reporting to you what they say. We're going to have a whole new slew of new vaccines. What? I don't want any more vaccines from you creeps. Injectables that are going to deal with some of the worst diseases in the world that, that give us the opportunity to make a big change in the health of the world. Oh, what's the big change? I think there's a huge impetus for a national digital infrastructure digitization in healthcare is one of the great game changers. Thank you very much. So not only are you going to go digital currency, but you're also going to go digital identity and put our vaccine status on that digital identity. Thank you very much. You just told me what you're doing. Why do evil people always tell you what they're going to do? It's like a spiritual rule. They have to. They have to brag about what they're doing because it's almost like they, I dare you to stop me. That's what's happening. And at the same time, they're pushing a slew of more vaccines coming our way. Doctor tells Canadian state media that after flu season comes stroke season. <laughs> I don't even realize, thought he, really, he realized what he was saying. Because you know what? They're going to have to account for all these people dying of strokes, heart attacks, and blood clots. And the, the amount just keeps mounting up higher and higher and higher. And I don't know how they're going to cover this up. Medical coincidence. But why are all, all these people stroking out? Why are young athletes dying? Huh. And so part of the globalist agenda is open borders. Right? They want open borders. Look what the, what the CPB reported in the month of December. 250,000 migrant encounters along the southwest border in December. Since Joe Biden has been in office, there has been 4.5 million migrants coming through the United States. And I told you this before. It was planned because they want to form a North American Union and they're going to collapse the United States through mass immigration. Because we can't pay for all these people. That'd be like me asking you, hey man, we got a 20 people outside that don't have a home. So you need to have compassion and let these people come in your home. And you need to pay for all their food. You need to pay for all the heating and electric and all of them. So you better do it because if you're not, you're a racist. That's what that's like. Nobody in their right mind would say, wait a second, I got my own family to feed. I'm barely paying my own bills, $31.4 trillion. Um, I can't take any more people in my home and pay for their food. and pay. That's right. And neither can the United States because it's intentional. And here's the other thing the globalists are using. The globalists are using the LGBT movement and the trans movement to shut you and I down. Because isn't it funny... 
that trans people and non-binary individuals have their own set of rules. You actually can't criticize them. You can't say that lifestyle is immoral. You can't say that lifestyle is destructive. You can't say that lifestyle is grooming kids. You can't say that. Because they're a special protected class now. But understand the globalists want to use them against the Judeo-Christian ethics of America. And look, at the, look on the groundwork what's happening. Insane things are happening. And of course, this gym guy's going to get fired. But this gym guy, he's running a gym, all women's gym. And this beast of a guy wants, he says he's a girl and says, I'm going to go to the girl's gym. Look at him. And, and we have to pretend in the insanity that that's a girl and that he can go into an all-girls gym. He's nothing but a pervert. That's why he wants to go to an all-girls gym. There's plenty of co-ed gyms. How come he wanted to go to an all-girls gym? Because a lot of these guys are just perverts pretending to be transgender. And yet, who gets bashed? The gym guy. The gym manager. Of course, because they have special rights, you know. You saw probably this, the hockey player that wouldn't wear the LGBT paraphernalia warming up. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, PJ Media had a good article next to this called, Is Pride the Woke World Version of the Mark of the Beast? And they were doing that tongue-in-cheek. They're not saying it's the mark of the beast. But what, they're, what they were, in effect, saying is linking the two by principle and saying, isn't it funny, in our society, if you don't have, wear a gay f- pride flag... If you don't fly that flag, if you don't allow your offices or your businesses to, to do Gay Pride Month and you don't celebrate this, then you know what? You're persona non grata and, 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 and we will demonize you for it. It's, it's kind of like the mark of the beast, so to speak, in the future. And that's what PJ Media is trying to point out. Have you noticed this in your company that if you don't go along with this agenda, you're out, baby? What is that? Trans movement will be the catalyst for normalizing pedophilia. You darn right it is. That's what's happening. These, these uh, minor attracted persons are making a pitch saying we were born this way, just like the LGBT says, we were born this way, and so we need to reduce the age of consent for sex, which is nothing but grooming the kids in the public schools for this. And we're normalizing it. And I'm telling you what, this, if this goes into that motion and that's being allowed, dude, you can expect a civil war. You, people are not going to put up with that. I mean, civil war. I mean, you go digital currency. You go, you go uh, vaccine passport stuff. And you start allowing pedophilia. Welcome to civil war, a hot war. We're in a cold war now. You will see a civil war because nobody in their right mind is going to put up with that insanity, harming kids like that. Anyway, so now that mess, as you can see, is major, right? Now, what we can do in that mess is stand against it, stand for the truth, and keeps, keeps telling the truth and getting people saved, okay? But that mess is so big. So global, it's going to take Jesus to stop, not only stop it, but clean it up. And that's our hope. This is way bigger than you and I. It's, we're needing God to intervene. These people have lost their minds. They're psychopaths. Everybody at the Davos Forum in Davos this week are psychopaths. 
They think they're gods and they want to do harm. Reduce the human population. Have us eat bugs. It's crazy satanic. So we need Jesus. So here's the promise that God gives us about cleaning up this mess. This is Daniel chapter 12. We'll start in verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, let's do some calculations here. Let me show you this. So he's talking about the abomination of desolation. That happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, right? So the tribulation is seven years. At the three and a half year mark, the abomination of desolation happens. Antichrist goes into the temple, proclaims himself to be God, and then erects, it appears, an AI idol. And this idol has the technological ability to kill you if you will not bow a knee to this idol. Now, people say, well, how can an idol do something like this? I think our technology tells you all the way. If they're going to be chipping people under their skin, if they're going to be using neural links like, like Elon Musk to tap into your brain, do you, do you not think they can have a kill switch in that thing? They can. It's not developed yet, but what they're developing is leading towards that in the tribulation. Thank God we're not here for that. So this kill switch kills anybody, so to speak, uh, if you don't worship the beast. You're just dead. So we're in that technological age. Okay, so from the midpoint, you've got three and a half years until Jesus comes back at the second coming. We're not talking about the rapture. We're talking about the second coming. Second coming happens 1,260 days. Okay, um, that gives you, in both ends, seven years. Jesus comes back, destroys every, uh, the Antichrist and his armies and, and, and everybody that's an enemy of Israel and God. Okay. So he ends it, but now he's going to clean it up. So Daniel just gave you an extra 30 days. 1,290 days. That's 30 days more than 1,260 days. Then he adds another. Blessed is he who waits the idea of waiting for the promises to be fulfilled and comes to the 1,335 days. He adds more days, an extra 45 days. So you add, what you do is you add up 30 plus 45 and you have an additional 75 days tacked on after the second coming. So we go back to our graph and you can see the 30 and 45 days interval between the second coming and the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years. So here's the question. What happens during the interval? It's a cleanup job by the Messiah and only he could do it. But what I want you to take away is before a new season begins, the messianic kingdom, the mess has to be cleaned up from the previous tribulation. And that's the same for our lives. Okay. Keep rolling with that principle. So what happens during the 75-day interval? Several things happen. Seven things, actually. First, the removal of the abomination of desolation. Now, this is interesting. The removal of the abomination of desolation was spoken of in what you just read. Okay? This is curious because a lot of events are happening simultaneously during this cleanup period. So simultaneously, you have the sheep and goat judgment, which I'll show you in just a bit happening while I believe this is still erected. Now notice, 
you, the, the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple. So on the top of the temple, you'll have an idol of the Antichrist at the top. Okay? Jesus is judging the nations, the Goyim, at the, in the Kidron Valley, and he's created a mountain valley, and he has brought all the living remaining Gentiles in front of him. It is a judgment of the Goyim, not the Jews, the Goyim, the nations. On his right hand are the sheep Gentiles, and on his left hand are the goats, the unsaved Gentiles. But imagine that behind him, he is standing at the eastern gate in the Kidron Valley, and behind him is the, the, the tribulation temple. And that statue of the Antichrist is standing right there on the top. Why does he do this? And again, this is conjecture, but I, I think it fits into the narrative. When you're judging, it appears that God wants to show them the very thing that got the goats in trouble. The worship of the Antichrist. The choosing to worship him as a god. Or like people today, choose the government as a god. Instead of Jesus, right? So, as he's judging them, this, this image of the Antichrist is behind him. And it's, it's a message to the unsaved. It's like this. You thought this guy was a god. I am the one true God standing in front of you that's judging whether or not you're going to hell. And you thought this guy was a god. I'm the true God. I destroyed him in an instant by the breath of my mouth. And now I'm going to judge you for what you did. So it's kind of like in your face. I'm going to show you your, your false God right there. And so you can see that. So here's the thing, the application before we move on. Have we removed those things in our lives that are idols? Well, an idol is not just a, you know, a, a figurine in your, in your house that you bow a knee to, like the Virgin Mary in the Catholic Church. No, no, no. An idol ha doesn't have to be wood or stone or whatever. An idol could be money. Idol could be security, worldly security. It could be worldly comfort. It could be anything. It could be an attitude. So idols plague us. We're idol factories. But here's what happens. When you get ready to go to a new season of life, do not drag your old idols with you into the next one. Remember, when Jacob took Leah and Rachel and they finally got out of Laban's service. He had labored 14 years for Laban. For He, he, he was tricked with, with um, Leah. Leah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, went blank there. He was tricked with it. I don't know how that happened. How do you, how did you get tricked in sleeping with another woman and you didn't know it was her? It wasn't Rachel? Man, you're dull. How did you, how did you not know that? So anyway, he was tricked by Laban, gets Leah first, and then he has to wait another seven years to get Rachel. Remember that? So it's 14 years to get Rachel. Okay. Leah represents the church. Rachel represents uh, Israel. Anyway. What did Rachel do when she left with Jacob from Laban? She took the idols of her house. 
with her. So Laban realizes the idols are stolen. So he runs over to Jacob where he's encamped and says, hey man, you stole my idols. And who was sitting on him saying, I'm menstruating, don't touch me. Rachel was pretending to have her period and the idols were right underneath her because she had stolen the idols. What Rachel was trying to do is take the idols that with her to the next stage of life. And that caused a disaster. It nearly got them all killed. You see, that's the principle. Every new season of life that God presents to us, he wants us to start afresh and new and have learned the lessons from the past, dealt with them, tied up the loose ends, and left the idols behind. The problem is, if you keep dragging those idols into the next seasons of life, you drag them throughout your entire life, and you don't get any better, because you still have the idols. And that's the problem. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing by destroying the abomination of the desolation. There will be no more idols in Israel ever again. That's it, okay, with the end of that. The second thing that happens, the false prophet and the Antichrist are resurrected from the dead. Because remember, they were killed instantaneously by Jesus with the breath of his mouth. That's the second coming. So in the 75-day interval, he resurrects them. Okay? Now, the damned, the unregenerate, will be resurrected at the end of a thousand years. But they're resurrected not to be given glorified bodies, but with their bodies again. But their bodies will be able to last for all eternity not in a glorified state they are resurrected in the body and then cast into the lake of fire well these two guys are cast first before the great white throne judgment into the lake of fire in their bodies because of the deeds done in their bodies they're a body soul unit so that's what god does so what's the principle here this is interesting if you look at isaiah 14 i want to show you something that's very unique when you read Isaiah 14, the first thing you'll see is the fall of Lucifer, and then you will see information about the Antichrist. And this is the last phrase in verse 21 about the Antichrist. And look what it says. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. Now, what is this about? This is a guarantee using Middle Eastern language of kings taking over another kingdom okay so you have the antichrist and his kingdom was done and now the new kingdom the messianic kingdom has come to fruition so what they would do in the ancient world is when a new king took over they would slaughter that king and his family and anyone connected to that king why in order to prevent a revolt or a revenge coming from that family later on. So that was a typical way they did things. So they would slaughter everybody and then take over. This is, in effect, what it's saying. Because we don't think the Antichrist is going to have children, but it's, it's, the, it's the concept, it's the principle that anyone that's connected with the Antichrist will be eliminated and slaughtered, and therefore there is no no way this will ever happen again it's done with i'm finishing off by killing the family so to speak and notice this this is interesting and feel the fit i don't want them to rise up and possess the land land of israel i don't want them taking over israel so this is never going to happen again and then i don't want them going to the face of the world and making cities now that's curious 
Making cities? Yeah. You know there's a theme in the Bible, and it carries all the way from Abraham. And by the way, next week we're starting Abraham. Okay. So anyway, there's a theme uh, with starting with Abraham all the way through the, through the end of days. It's the theme that you do not want to live in cities. That the, 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 the spiritually mature stay away from cities, and they, they stay in tent living. Again, I'm, that's a metaphor... But it also comes out in real life. Okay? What's the problem with cities? First city, Tower of Babel. First city is Babylon. What's the problem there? They've tried to form a one world government under Nimrod. Problem. God, and what did they do? They clumped up and urbanized. They urbanized and stayed together. You want them dispersed in a rural setting. This tells you a little bit about the kingdom. The kingdom of, of, of the messianic rule will be mainly rural. There will be only one city. That's Jerusalem. There will be we, the cities that we're like the, the way I'm talking about is like New York, Detroit, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco. OK, I'm talking about those Big metropolitans. Yes, there will be towns and, and little places like that. No doubt about that. But we're talking about the cities. The big, big cities. So what, he says, I'm not going to let them to do this anymore. Understand this. This is interesting. The globalists do not want us living in rural areas. They don't. They don't even want us to farm in, in rural areas. That's why they're eliminating farming because they want to control all the farming. But what do they want to do with us? They want to put us in urban areas, 15-minute city, so that they can control us. But the problem about being in a city, and I've lived in a major city like New York, that city has a propensity of corrupting you because there's so many evil influences in a city. Take L.A. Would you like to live in L.A.? No. Would you like to live in San Francisco with all the, the, the homeless and the defecation and the drugs? No. Detroit? No. Minneapolis? No. Right? I just came from there. My goodness. I'd, I'd rather live in, 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 in Button Will than, than uh, Minneapolis. New York? No. No. Chicago? No. No way. You see the problem? It's always been a theme. So what the globalists are doing are trying to urbanize everybody, clump them up together because they're easier to control. Rural areas. That's when America was at its best. It's when America was spread out in an agrarian society and the spiritualness of America was at its zenith. When America urbanized, that's when things started happening. And they will continue to do this. Interesting. I don't want, uh, I'm not going to let them build cities anymore. Wow. So here's the principle. We have to remove ourselves from that which stumbles us, tempts us, and tries to destroy us. That's what the idea of killing the Antichrist and throwing him into the lake of fire represents. God is getting rid of that which would destroy you or tempt you or anything like that. So we have to be like this. I reference Hebrews chapter 12 on this. Let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. 
What is the saying? He says, Christian, you're running a race. The problem is you're carrying these bags with you, these weights, like 50-pound weights, and you're trying to run a race, and you're dragging 50-pound dumbbells with you as you run. And the more baggage you have, the more weights you're carrying, and the slower you go. And so they become a stumbling block if you continue to carry these weights, and you will fall and destroy yourself. So the issue is, if I'm going to go to the next season of life, and understand, we're in a new normal, realize, you realize that. You have to let go of the weights if you're going to be able to adapt to the new normal that's coming. You have to let go of those weights. And, 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 and what is that? Well, it could be anything. Past regrets, unforgiveness, any of those things that you're dragging with you. And you take unforgiveness, for instance, into the next season of life, dude, it's going to be the thing that, that stumbles you and causes you to jump off the cliff, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. Because you will carry it with you and you never get better. Here, look, in counseling, let me ask you this question. If you're bitter at 35 and you don't let go of that, how do you think you're going to be at 75? You will be so bitter, the salt will just emanate from your skin and, and because you're so bitter and no one's going to be want, want to be around you. Because you don't get better, you actually get worse. And that's what God's trying to say. Look, I have a new season of life. It's going to be harder. You better leave that baggage behind. You better deal with it and clean up that mess. What else happens? Well, Satan is bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit, the abuso. So no longer can he tempt humans. The demons and fallen angels are confined to uh, the area of Babylon and Edom. So there's two places on the world during the Messianic kingdom where the fallen angels and demons are bound. And the smoke of the torment comes up from those two areas as a reminder of what Jesus has done by holding them there in confinement. Now, they haven't been thrown in the lake of fire because Satan will be released at the end of the thousand years to tempt all the fakers in the Messianic kingdom to actually attack Jesus. But nonetheless, this is the elimination of a tempter, um, and any and fallen angel and demonic influence on the world at that period of time. So here's what you have to f- applica- uh, apply. What does Satan being bound represent? He represents what he did to all, us and Adam and Eve in the garden. He told them you can become a god. That God's holding back on you. That you can be the captain of your own ship, determining right and wrong. Well, I'm going to tell you this. If you're going to go into the next season of life, you better drop the God complex. There's too many Christians that say they're above the rules. That they don't have to comply. That's the hyper grace movement. They can sin and they're forgiven and they sin with a right, uh, uh, with a, a right hand. And sinning with the right hand means I know what I'm doing and I'm going to do it anyway. Because I'm above the rules. That's becoming a God unto yourself. Or they're going to start taking in what the world teaches and become uh, an arbiter of what right and wrong is. So that's why you see churches now saying that abortion's okay. This is why you see churches saying gay marriage is okay. Because they have become a God unto themselves. They won't listen to God's authority. That has to get out of us. We are not above the rules. We can't be the captain of our own ship. You must let go of the steering wheel and let Jesus take you where he wants you. You can't resist that. 
because that's your only way of surviving the next season of life. You've got to give up your own pride. Fourth, the fourth thing that happens is the judgment of the living Gentiles. We call this the sheep and goat judgment based on Matthew 25 and Joel 3 is the Old Testament reference. Now, what happens here? Now, this is interesting, and let me explain this. So stay with me, or I'll lose you like a wet bar of soap in a shower. We do not want to approach this text from preconceived mindsets of Arminianism or Calvinism. Okay? The Calvinists and the Arminians pour their own theological structures into the text and make it say stuff it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean to say. So let's just exegete the text. So this happens at 75-day interval. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, second coming, and he will sit on the throne of his glory. This is the throne, David's throne, to judge the goyim, the nations, okay? Not the Jews, but then the goyim. All the nations, or the goyim, will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from, one, from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. Now, here's what you have to understand what the text is saying. Jesus is already separating them, them out because he knows who are the believing element of the Gentiles. And he knows who are the unbelieving element of the Gentiles. So, please understand, this is not a judgment of who's saved or not. That's not the issue here. The fact that he's dividing them between sheep and goats, he already knows who's saved. That's not what the issue is. What is the issue? Well, let me explain. There are three major judgments that will occur. The first one is the Bema Seat of Christ. When we are raptured, we will go before Christ and he will judge us on our works. Because if you're at the Bema Seat, that means you're saved to begin with. You're not going to the Bema Seat if you're unregenerate. So decision of salvation is already made here and now. So if you appear at the Bema Seat, what's being judged? Your works as a Christian. And whether or not he can reward you for those works. Okay. Now let's go over to the last judgment, the third judgment, the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment, if you're at that one, that means you're lost to begin with. You don't show up to that one unless you're lost. Okay. So it's not an issue of determining whether you're saved or not. It's an issue of your works again. But in this case, you're, since you're unregenerate, your works will determine the degree of punishment in the lake of fire. It's always based on works, Revelation chapter 20. Now, so I have the two bookends of judgment. Now I go to the sheep and judge, uh, goat judgment in the middle. It's the same principle. What is being determined here is not whether someone is saved or not, but whether or not there's enough evidence to convict them. It's an arraignment for the great white throne judgment. That's what this is. It's an arraignment. Okay? It's not a determination of salvation. Okay. So all the nations are gathered and separated. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. You always want to be on the right hand of the Messiah. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Speaking to believing Gentiles that have lived through the tribulation. Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, what you have to understand is about inheritance. 
understand there is a difference between inheriting the kingdom versus entering the kingdom. And please keep the, the category separate theologically, because if you blend the two, you will get so fouled up, you'll be, be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. Okay? So make sure you separate those things out. Okay. How does one enter the kingdom of God? What did he tell Nicodemus? You must be born again in order to see or enter the kingdom. Ah, there we go. So entrance into the kingdom is by faith. Faith in the Messiah alone, right? Okay, so we have that settled. But inheritance is a different ballgame. So let me give you this scenario. Let's say you have three kids, okay? And you won the lottery and you're a multimillionaire. Okay, so you have a grip of money to give to your kids when you should pass away. And so this is the inheritance you have for them. Okay, but Billy Bob here is a drug addict. He can't get his life straight. He's in and out of jail. And any money I give him, he squanders. And he's turned on us like a sheep-killing dog. He hates mom and dad. He doesn't want anything to do with us. Mary, golden. John, golden. Couldn't ask for better kids. But you got one that's a jack wagon. He's just crazy. He's out of his mind, right? So what do people do? They have their inheritance, and they say, Billy Bob, I'm going to leave you a dollar in the will so you can't contest the will. So I'm going to give it to Mary and John or whoever I named them as. I'm going to give the inheritance to those two because they were always good to me and they deserve that. But I'm going to withhold the inheritance. All three are children, aren't they? They never will lose that status. They're all three are children. All three are heirs, right? All three are heirs. But it's up to me of whether or not I give the inheritance to them. Bingo. That's when you see the word inheritance, that's different than entrance. Inheritance means I'm going to give you a reward based on what you did. So the evidence for the saved goyim, the evidence for the saved goyim that they should be rewarded is what they did in the following passage. Let's see. For I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This is a a social justice warrior's dream passage, right? Because this is the passage they take out of context and use for their social justice warrior, right? But they don't understand the context. Then the righteous will answer him, the saved goyim, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? And by the way, the context is after the tribulation. Okay, keep that in mind. It's not for here and now. He's saying this to them after the tribulation because they did something special for a particular group in the tribulation. When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my 
brethren, you did it to me. Ah, who are the brethren? The brethren, according to Scripture, is Micah chapter 4. And Micah says, the remnant of Israel is called the brethren. The brethren is not some lost dude out there. That's what the social justice warriors, well, I got to go feed the homeless. That's not considered the brethren in context. Micah chapter 4 or 5, I'm sorry, 5, is telling you that the brethren is the remnant of Israel. Hence, Matthew assumes that you know that. And so he throws that terminology, the brethren, in there. And guess what? When you did it to the least of these, my Jewish biological brethren in the tribulation, you did it unto me. Ah! Boy, that just cuts out the whole wokeism, right? The whole whole social justice warriors cut out if you know the context. He's talking about helping Israel. So the, the, the evidence that, that these saved Gentiles should be rewarded and inherit rewards is how they treated the Jews during the tribulation. Because here's the deal. Antichrist is going to go after every Jew on the planet and try to kill them and wipe them out. And he kills two-thirds of them. So what will happen is these Gentiles that are saved will, will be like Corey Ten Boom and those people in Holland that tried to help the Jews and, 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 and hide them and feed them and go to prison and, and you know, all that stuff. What happened in World War II? They will do the same thing, but protecting them not from Hitler, but from the Antichrist. Will they do more good works? Of course. But the judgment is just picking up on one main issue. And this, is the, there enough evidence to reward them with an inheritance? Of course. Look how they treated the Jews. Now, let's go to the flip side. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him. This is the unsaved, Goyim. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did did not do it to one of these least of these. Who are the least of these? The brethren in context. Right? You did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but they're righteous into eternal life. Ah, here we go. So the evidence at this arraignment that they deserve the lake of fire, all I have to do is look how they treated the Jews in the tribulation. That's that's all the evidence Jesus is saying I need. You will be punished in the lake of fire. That's the evidence in this arraignment that you will go to court, stand before God at the great white throne judgment, and then be cast into the lake of fire. It's the arraignment. See, so the issue of the sheep and goat judgment is evidence. Evidence for reward, evidence for punishment, degree of punishment in the lake of fire. Now here's the question, the application. Is there enough evidence in your service to the Lord right now that assures you that you will be rewarded. See, 
Christianity, the, the, front, the front door is salvation, okay? But that's not where it ends. That's where it begins. And too many churches just preach that's the beginning and then that's it. Well, you're saved. Okay, that's it. No, no, no. There's, there's plenty more. So my job is to take you where the more is. See, when, when Peter would say, make your calling and election sure, it is not the Calvinistic, make sure you're saved. The Bible never questions your salvation because simply it's this. Are you convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that died on a cross for your sin, was buried, rose on the third day? Are you convinced that he can give you everlasting life? Yes or no? Lord. Yes. If you can, that's faith. Are you convinced that he can give you everlasting Of course. Boom. You're done. No more we need to go back to that. You're eternally secure at that point in time. Easy, right? So when Peter says, make your calling and election sure, he is not referring to salvation because the context says discipleship. So he's saying, look, your calling does not have to do with calling to salvation. It is a call to service. Make your calling to service sure. So basically, Peter's saying, are you being discipled enough so that, and sanctified enough so that you will be rewarded at the end? Amen. That's what he's talking. He's not doubting someone's salvation. He's doubting their discipleship. Ah, so what do I have to look for? How do I make sure I'm going to be rewarded? Well, it's simple. Are you doing things out of duty? Or are you doing the extra mile? Come into church, reading your Bible, and praying are your duties. You're not going to get rewarded for that. You will only get rewarded for going past that in your call. Are you faithful or are you a flake? I mean, you really have to ask yourself, am I a flake? Can I keep my commitments? If I, I tell I'm going to serve, do I keep my commitments? Or do I call in because, oh, you know what? I have a, a headache and I, 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 you know, it's really... You know what? Take two aspirin and get to work. I'm tired of people being lazy and I'm tired of people, be, the men being feminine. Work through the pain. Serve him. Because service to him is a sacrifice and he asks you to sacrifice. So be committed. Be faithful. And understand that Jesus is the priority. You know that most Christians don't have Jesus as the priority in their life. If something comes along better in their life, hey, I want to do this. I'm going to the lake. Boom, I'm there. If I have nothing to do, I guess I'll go to church. What? Who thinks like that, old Laodicea? Have you overcome the seven issues in the seven churches? Look at them. What are they asked to overcome? Do you suffer well or do you suffer bad? Are you fulfilling your call in life? Everyone has a call. What is your unique call? Well, it's based on the gifting that you have. So your gifting and your experience and your history and your pain will tell you where you're supposed to be ministering to and fulfilling that call. Are you multiplying your talent or burying your talent in the ground because you're afraid? Now, here's the thing. Cleaning up our mess is necessary, past and present, and you do it by being sanctified by the truth of God's word. Romans chapter 12. What do you mean? The baggage you're carrying, the mess that has, is unresolved, has to do with you not applying truth to those areas. That you're actually living according to lies. And you won't let it go. That's the idols, that's the baggage, that's the mess. It's all centered around lies. 
The key is to renew your mind through the scripture so that you can see clearly the truth of the situations so that it can cause you to fix the mess, let go of the baggage, and move on. But people won't apply truth, and so they keep carrying the baggage like Jacob Marley. Right? Remember Jacob Marley and he's talking to Scrooge? He had, what, what did Dickens put in there? He, had, he was carrying chains and weights with him, right? Remember that scene in the cartoon? And it was like... Uh, not Donald Duck, but the other guy. Um, Scrooge. Mick, Mick Scrooge. Right? Isn't that funny? that My, my whole m- mindset of Charles Dickens' thing is uh, Donald Duck or whatever. <laughs> but in all the scenes of Jacob Marley, what did Dickens portray him as? Carrying weights. Carrying weight. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 is trying to say. Dickens pulled that from Hebrews chapter 12 and put it on Marley. Isn't that funny? And so this is the idea. If you're not willing to deal with the issue, Scrooge, remember, you're going to end up carrying the weights just like Jacob Marley. That's how Dickens brought in that Christianity into his novel. And it's the same thing it applied. So what do you do? You have to be conformed to the image uh, uh, of God, obviously, and transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to read the scriptures about your issues. You apply the scriptures to your issues. Okay, let's continue to move on. Not only do you have to clean up your own mess, you have to clean up the mess of others. And this is what people don't want to get involved in in ministry. Because like your call, I can tell you this. If you don't like people, you're not going to do your call. Serious, man. If you don't like people, you will not serve the Lord. Because the only way to serve them is to serve people. That's the only way it works. And you will have to get neck deep into their issues. Neck deep. And you're like, man, I don't want that. I have my own trouble. No, 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 no. You have to jump in and help them. Because someone helped you to get out of your mess. You owe it. And you need to pay it forward to other believers and help them get out of their mess. So part of your call, whatever your call is, will always include helping others get out of their mess. You have to do that whether you like it or not. It's ugly. It's messy. You're going to see things you don't like to see. But... The same is true about you. And someone was willing to reach down and help you. You've got to give it forward. Now you have the resurrection of the Old Testament saints during this period of time. You have the resurrection of tribulation saints during the 75-day interval. So you have that. And the idea, remember he, he told them to wait. Wait on me. Wait on my promises. And the, every time you wait, you renew your strength. If you can wait on the Lord's timing, then you will renew your strength according to Isaiah 40. And that's the idea of resurrecting the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints after the second coming. We are resurrected at the rapture before. So it has to do with waiting, waiting on the Lord, which the Old Testament saints are doing right now in heaven. But go, go your way till the end, for you shall rest, and it will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. What did you say to Daniel? He's saying, look, man, now that it's over, you're going to die peacefully. You shall rest. And will arise. What does arise mean? You will be resurrected. And, you're in, and you'll get your inheritance. Inheritance means reward. So Daniel is going to be rewarded for what he did. That's what the, the, the thing says to Daniel at the end here. And this is what it's saying to us. Look, whatever you do, do it heartily. Give it 100%, man, what you're doing. As to the Lord, not to men. Don't do this to be seen by men when you serve God. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of inheritance. Notice that it links reward to inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. And 
And then you have the last aspect, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's found in Isaiah, Matthew 22, and the parable, Matthew 25, Revelation 19. The marriage feast of the Lamb will inaugurate. It will be the last part of the 75-day interval. It will inaugurate the first day of the Messianic kingdom. The, so here's the parable. Follow me on this. Again, let's not read into the text. Let's just derive from the text what it's saying. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. So there's a big wedding happening. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. And everyone's invited, by the way. His majesty, the king of kings, has personally invited you. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my ox and my fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready for this event. Come to the wedding, please. But they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his business. Who is this referring to? It's referring to Israel. Okay? It's referring to the first coming. It's referring to the, that the invitation first goes to the Jews, then the Gentiles. The invitation goes to, the, to Israel first. That's what it's saying. Okay? They made light of it. They went their ways. One to his own farm and another to his own business. I got, they're too busy for Jesus. And the rest seized the servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Because you know what happened? I sent my, my, my invitators to invita- invite people, and they turned on them and persecuted them and killed them. Yes, they killed the people giving the invitation out. They persecuted them. But when the king heard about this persecution, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city 70 AD through the Romans, right? For the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. The idea is they counted themselves not worthy to receive this invitation. They didn't want to go. They actually judged themselves that they were unworthy of eternal life. They made their own judgment, not him. Okay? Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good or bad and good. Who are these people? The Gentiles. Why does it label them good and bad? Because salvation is not about you being good because one sin sends you to hell. So whether someone's moral or someone's a a, a thief or, or whatever, it doesn't matter because you accept the invitation by faith. It's not about moral. It's an invitation of it, uh, and accepting that. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now stop. Where is this? This is in heaven. So the rapture happens. Those who have accepted the invitation now are at the wedding hall. And it's filled with guests. John said he was the guest of the bridegroom. So John will be there. And the rest of the Old Testament saints will be there. And we will be there at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Okay? So it's a picture that we made it. We're in the wedding feast. We're in the hall. Okay? Continue with me on this whole wedding feast in a banquet hall. Okay? Just keep that metaphor in your head. It represents the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? 
But when the king came in to see the guests, those who actually took the invitation and went, okay, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, wait a second. Everyone, like I said, everyone that's there in the wedding banquet is saved. They wouldn't be allowed because entrance is you must be born again. So who is this guy that doesn't have a wedding garment on? Look how he speaks to him. He said to him, friend. Jesus doesn't call his enemies friends. Who does he call his friends? Right? Us? Friend. How did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. What? This is not about salvation. This is not someone crashing the party. This is someone that accepted the invitation and is at the wedding feast, but they didn't prepare for the wedding feast because they have no wedding clothes. What's that about? Look at Revelation 19.8. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Oh, The wedding clothes are the righteous acts of the saints. Look at Revelation 16. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps what? His garments. Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Bingo. So now the parable segues from the invitation to salvation. Now it's focusing on believers and it's saying, friend, How did you come in here with no wedding clothes? You were supposed to put on your wedding clothes. And now you come in here and you don't have any wedding clothes. What in effect is Jesus saying at the Bema seat to that believer? He's saying, you don't have the robes of reward. Revelation 19.8. You don't have any righteous acts. You're naked. You're ashamed in front of me. Yes, you're here but you have nothing to offer me in terms of rewards. I can't reward you for anything. Friend. And what is his response? He's speechless. A lot of Christians will be speechless in front of Christ. But what did they do to him? Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him to outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. This is not a salvation passage as I'm showing you. So what does this mean? These are Hebrew idioms and there's three of them and you have to understand the Hebrew behind this. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. This is a Hebrew idiom of, that comes from their legal system of like put him in cuffs, so to speak. But what is it saying? He is saying this servant of mine is now going to be restricted. See, the binding of hands and foot means he's restricted. What is he going to be restricted about? About his activities in the kingdom he will be restricted from because he doesn't have the rewards that allow him to exercise that freedom in the kingdom. So this servant is restricted. Take, Take him away. What is this idea? Take him out of the wedding hall. Take him from the reward of the marriage supper of the lamb. So the issue is he is now going to be excluded 
from some of the items in the messianic kingdom because he has nothing to show for it in his Christian life. So he is, rewards have been taken away. You do not get to participate in the Lamb's marriage supper. You're in the kingdom, you're in it, but now you're restricted and you cannot come and sit at the table with Messiah. And cast in the outer darkness. This is not hell. This is not hell, guys. It's too many Calvinists and Arminians have interpreted this as hell. It is not. It is a Jewish idiom. What this refers to is being thrown onto the streets. Because in a Jewish situation, you would have your houses and then you have a major fence. And you were allowed into the house to feast and then they would close the gate behind you so that intruders wouldn't come from the street. So the idea is they would have this wedding feast at night. And so the idea is we're going to exclude you from the wedding feast and throw you into the street where that's where the outer darkness is in the street. Only inside the house is where the light is. But outside of the house in the street, there's no light. There's no, there's no lamps in, in Jerusalem, so to speak. You know what I mean? So the idea is outer darkness means being excluded from the blessings of certain things in the kingdom. Excluded. You're excluded now. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Aha, another Jewish idiom. What does that mean? It seems like people are being thrown into hell and they're weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a Jewish idiom that means extreme regret. Why is the guy extremely regretting what just happened to him? Because he knows that he was lazy in life. He knows he didn't serve. He knows why he's not being rewarded. And that's the extreme grief and regret this believer feels when he's been excluded from rewards. That's what the parable teaches. And verse 14 wraps the whole thing up. For many are called to serve me, but few are chosen for rewards. I hope you get to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. I hope you get to rule and reign with Messiah. I hope you get every blessing and every reward that's coming to you. Do not let anyone steal it from you. So what does that imply? Serve him until he calls us home. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn in your scriptures. The 75-day interval and all the activities that go on during that period of time. Help us to serve you faithfully and dedicated to you and committed to you until you call us home. I pray for anyone here that hasn't come to faith in the Messiah, they would do so today. I understand that he died for them on a cross for their sins, was buried, rose on the third day, and offers everlasting life to anyone who will believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.